Welcome. This is the Matterhorn. I'm your host, Dr. Kathleen Waller. Here we discover the truth in fiction by understanding how to layer stories with ideas, culture, places, and texts. Join us on Substack for links, extra media, and transcripts. There you can also join the conversation and read my serialized novel, A Hong Kong Story. Hi everyone, it's Kate here, and I'm back with episode two of our second season, um, and it's called How to Use Frames and Titles to Amplify Stories. Um, So I'm going to be talking about framing, kind of entering a text of fiction. Um, In this case, I'm especially looking at novels, but I'll talk a little bit about other art forms, and I think that you can apply it to other art forms as well. Uh, this past Saturday, I shared with you uh, just the the frame of the serialized novel I'll be using as a catalyst for this project. So with A Hong Kong Story, the novel, I shared the title, the dedication, the um, an excerpt from a poem at the beginning, and just the first chapter title, Quarry Bay, uh, which is a place in Hong Kong, and the first line, which is the blood came one day and wouldn't stop. So I'm going to be talking about those elements, um, but I'm also going to be talking about a bunch of other books, right? Now I'm, I'm sitting here with my notes and I've got a pile of, I think, 12 books next to me that I'm going to be um, either just mentioning or reading a short um, excerpt from and talking about it in this in this vein. So I hope that it's something that interests you and maybe with your own writing or other kinds of fiction, you can share in the comments on Substack how you're using this, if it's similar to some things I talk about or maybe in a very different way, um, or if there's other examples from literature that you want to bring up that do this um, in an interesting way. So part of the frame of the framing discussion um, is going to be using especially Derrida's Truth in Painting, Jacques Derrida, um, which I talked about last week in regards to the title of this season, Truth in Fiction. Um, And so we'll be looking at the way he discusses uh, framing and entries into texts in that book as a a way to, to kind of think about other literature. And I'll also be looking at Terry Eagleton's um, How to Read Literature, just the first uh, section of that book, which is on openings, um, which I think is also a really useful place to start and just a really great kind of orienting book in general. And another um, piece of work by Derrida that we can look at in terms of framing is Before the Law, which makes use of Kafka's title Before the Law for his his parable that comes from the trial. And um, it's it's a really beautiful text, but a rather um, convoluted one in some parts. But it, it also, it talks about us arriving at a text. And as we arrive at that text, just like the, the man at the door um, in the parable by Kafka, we we consider how we enter that text and if we have the right to enter that text and why we dare to enter that text. And so um, titles and frames create different ways of, of entry. So I think I'll leave it at that for now and we might come back to 
um, before the law, both the Kafka and the Derrida later on. Okay, so let's start with uh, the truth in painting. And um, I just want to talk about two sections at the beginning of that book. And you can, I've got links for you in the notes. You can find translations of those easily online um, from reputable sources. So uh, this is the Paragon chapter and the Passepartout. So, um, you know, I mentioned also last week that with Derrida, sometimes the language he uses isn't really translatable into English. So you can describe it and talk about it in English and eventually get to, you know, those ideas that he meant. But you'll notice that those two chapter titles are, well, first of all, in Greek and then in French. And um, the and I've, I've looked at several translations and um, none of them really think that putting those words in, in English in the titles would make much sense. So let's just start with the Paragon, even though the book starts with Passepartout. It just uh, makes sense for this discussion, I think. And uh, for the Greeks, this this going back to the Greek, it means beside, additional to the work, um, Paragon. So the Aragon is the essence of the work. And they saw it as a, as a negative or superfluous, Thing outside of the work. The columns on the building, for example, metaphorically, are just kind of extra stuff which don't really have a purpose. Um, but, you know, of, of course, the, the Greeks spent a lot of time in their columns. So I think it's, you know, loaded um, a word for them as well. It's not as simple as seeing it as a negative thing. But maybe you know, sometimes we add frames that are unnecessary, that take away from the essence. Um, even if you think of like a, a self, you think of yourself, your individuality, your personality, um, maybe we can see it in that way. So Immanuel Kant, um, first more famously as a philosopher, drew on this word and this idea from the Greeks. And he saw Ergon as one's life work, um, so if you're an artist, you know, your life's work. If you're an engineer, um, that as your life's work. And then the paragon as essential to it. So he, he didn't see the negative quality. He saw the framing as something that is, is really important in the way we understand um, one's life work or the essence of something. So in metaphor, he described it as three things, the clothing on a statue, the columns on a building, again, as I mentioned, um, which is often referred to, and thirdly, the frame of a painting, which is where Derrida really picked up. And so Derrida talks about Kant in his book. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Kant right now, but if that's something you're interested in, I'd love to have more of a discussion on it again in the comments or um, in these monthly coffee chats that we're going to start. So just kind of make a note, hold on to that idea if you want to if you want to get into that a little bit more. And um, please feel free to bring in your expertise in the area or your questions. That would be great. So for Derrida, it's this this idea of the using the frame of painting as the essential metaphor. And he's talking about reconciling oppositions, which is something he does in deconstruction in general. You know, if you're familiar with deconstruction, the idea is to deconstruct the dichotomies, not to think of binaries as black and white. I mean, I'm talking about it in simplified terms, but 
actually this is really the essence of a lot of what he's he's saying um he's looking at the internal external of the of the piece of art or the fiction um and the way that they relate to each other and the way that they kind of speak to each other through the frame as a kind of liminal space which i know is a really hot word these days but i think it's also a really useful tool in understanding um a lot of concepts about the arts so he's understanding that they fit together as a whole and that they're dependent on each other so he he also speaks of keeping us from falling into the abyss through these structures and frames um so that you know it gives more meaning to what's in front of us it also you know allows us to kind of speak about it you know if we've got something if we just work with a painting right now if we got something that's in a frame on a wall, whether it's a museum or somebody's home, you know, it gives us a chance to speak about it. Um, If it's just kind of thrown somewhere, you might not notice it. And so you might not get the chance to, um, to talk about it. So he's, he's also distinguishing between the aesthetic pleasure and logic. Um, Each one though, he thinks is aided by the frame. So the way it looks, the beauty of the piece, um, why it might speak to us um, in a in a in a more sort of like uh, intrinsic way, I guess. And then the the logic. So what it's really you know trying to say is it making an argument, um, you know, and paintings make arguments too at times. And so the frame helps us to see that and understand it. It allows us to see also this transcendental beauty that's outside of anything that maybe we can fully describe even with language. Um, So going back to that liminal space for a moment, it's the kind of in-between, it's a space of transition and of borders. Um, It's something that other writers talk about. Gaston Bachelard, who wrote The Poetics of Space, I'll I'll mention quite a bit in this podcast, especially when I'm talking about spaces and places. Um, And he talks about the threshold, but he he says that there isn't really a threshold. It's just the between space. Um, So this is, he's predating Derrida and He's he's talking about this space as a as a moving between as a as a place of transition, not as something that's so fixed. And there's a lot of visual artists working um, with this space, um, such as I've got a link to Marina Hiltzenga for you in the post. Um, there are a lot of artists working at borders um, with this idea of liminal space, especially photographers, but not only. Um, there are several working in Canada, uh, I think partly because in juxtaposition to artwork that's coming from the Mexico-American, Mexican-American border, where, you know, you've got walls, um, and you've got barbed wire, and you've got, you know, that's an interesting space of, um, I mean, it's, it's, can be a really terrible and emotional space, a very sad space, a space of death, um, a space of injustice. Um, it can also be an uplifting space, an empowering space, um, you know, for those who do kind of make it across and make a life on the other side. But if we look at the Canadian-American border, a lot of that border is not even really marked. Um And so with no identifiable border, what does it mean to cross over? What is it like to be between, especially if you're an immigrant, 
um, whether you're coming from America to Canada or the opposite, or you're coming from another place, um, what does that, what does that border mean to you? So, you know, I've looked at borders in the Matterhorn before, um, I'm really interested in this space. We're not going to go into it a lot today, but you might just think about, you know, what does the border have to do with framing your work? If we think about like the distinction between cultures and peoples, um, you know, we're we're allowing an entry into something. Um, not that you need like a passport to do it, right? But you also might um, you might encounter something different culturally as you pass. And what kind of markers or notes do you want to give people before they make that entry into your fiction? Maybe you don't want to give them much at all and just to let them kind of discover it as they move freely through it, maybe instead you really want to kind of cue them that this space is about, you know, X, Y, Z. So it's just another way of thinking about it. Um, so then the passepartout, it's, it comes before Paragon in the book. And it's, it's, the, it's the picture between the glass and the cardboard. So it, a passepartout can also be a master key, but it, it can mean quite a few different things. But it, it can be that sort of... Um, little cardboard that holds the glass from hitting the picture and I've made the mistake of putting like a photograph of my son in a frame without that and it just gets like sticky on the glass and yucky right so it has a very functional purpose um it can also be part of the aesthetic you know framing the whether it's a photograph or another kind of picture um into um to a more aesthetically pleasing, perhaps, photograph, or maybe it's emphasizing something in the image before us in the way that it's framed. So it's just another level of framing. And it is it is kind of that liminal space because it's something that we maybe don't notice. It's an entry into. Um, and it's, it's kind of a universal means of passage. So Something that uh, Derrida says in this section is truth could be presented or represented quite otherwise according to other modes. Here it is done in painting and not in discourse, as is commonly the case in literature, poetry, theater, nor is it done in the time of music or in other spaces, architecture or sculpture. Thus we retain here that which is proper to an art, the art of the signatory of Cezanne, the painter. So he's partly talking about, you know, what's what's special about painting itself in this case. And as I mentioned last week, um, the title of the book comes from something that Cezanne wrote to another artist friend um, that he would reveal the truth in painting. And so there's there's some truth that comes from the actual medium itself. So the the frame of that kind of art you know and we can even get more specific like when we're talking about books a certain genre um a certain text type and the framing kind of cues us whether it's the cover or the title or the website we find it on the framing cues us into what we're going to see before us um so if we if we understand Cezanne literally when he says I owe you the truth in painting and I will tell it to you um, he swears an oath to speak. He does not only speak, he promises to do so. He commits himself to speak is, is the way that Derrida interp interprets it. Um, and all artists in some way, 
you know, give this kind of promise to speak, I think, by putting something out there and framing it for us. They're saying here, um, this is something to speak about, right? So it the, the chapter also goes into the question of what is art, um, you know, the beauty within the frame, um, the way that it speaks to us. This is a, this is a, a question of the ages, right? It's a difficult question to answer, but it's one that's really interesting to think about. And I think there's a lot of different um, responses we could get to that question of what is art. I've, I've looked at it with students before in the classroom and, you know, there's just so many angles that you can, that you can take. Um, so if you imagine a painting without a frame, we view it very differently. Sometimes, of course, this is done in purpose, on purpose in modern and contemporary art. Um, but Degas says the frame is the reward for the artist. It's, it's, this is from Degas now, not Cezanne. Um, he sees it as something that kind of allows the art to then move to an audience. Um, and Van Gogh says a picture without a frame is like a soul without a body. So clearly some um, famous artists think that, you know, this is an important thing to do to our art. Um, also, the the poet that I quoted at the beginning of my of my book here, um, Lung Ping Kwan. I'm going to look at the, the poem that I chose there a little bit more in a moment, but he has a poem called Thinking of Vincent at Van Gogh's Exhibition. Um, and this is on page 149 of Amblings. I think this poem um, actually has a lot to do with the idea of framing even though it doesn't really talk about the frame itself. It talks about crossing lines, about the museum. Um, and it has an interesting way of looking at, uh, you know, thinking about art and talking about art. So I'm just going to read it for you now. Thinking of Vincent at Van Gogh's Exhibition by Lung Ping Kwan. You and I are strangers in this museum, your wound brilliant like the sun, because you have not covered it with decorations. I don't know how to describe my worries, not willing to put on whatever golden and silvery mask. Neither are you one of those who enter after standing in a queue, standing away from those who have already bought the tickets. You are not one of those who buy a color book as a gift and walk with a New York Times tucked under the arm on Sundays nor one of those who stroll among delicate products, collect souvenirs everywhere on a trip, meet and take off coats in the cloakroom, chat at the museum, Vincent van Gogh. You and I are two strangers here. We are those worn shoes, frozen in the snowy world, worn in our footsteps, getting close and moving away. You can only give away the clumsy curve of your own car, to of your own ear, sorry, to decorate the houses of others. You hurry out, not knowing you have crossed the lines. You stammer and repeat, I will send the portrait to you today. You must take time to look, and I hope you see. I become calmer, and I try to make it simpler. Amidst constant chatter, I can always hear your rough voice swallowing great misery and looking outside of yourself, saying at this very moment, you still see green roses, beetles, and cicadas flying in the waves of heat. I love your sublimity. It never strays from ordinary things. We both look for clear lines. The chatting voices die away. Orderly cues become abstract patterns. 
Groups are dispersed, and I still feel you are behind me, staring at the world, looking longer and deeper. You say there is a long bench, and there are three chairs, a dark person with a yellow hat. You say there is a black cat ahead. You say the sky is pale green. So he has a lot of beautiful poems, and I'll, I'll talk about um, P.K. Lung a little bit more um, in a moment and also more on a later podcast, but I've been talking with um, his uh, the where his estate is held in Macau, who's then liaised with his, um, his widow to make sure we have the copyright to read these poems here, so that was really important to me. Um, but I'll tell you more about my, my connection with him in a bit. So we can also think about the frame in terms of how we enter a room. Here it's the museum space, um, you know, and what that museum space means. But I'm interested in the space of this kind of transition in all the rooms of entry. And I think about this as I write fiction of crossing the thread threshold and the liminal space between. So as we enter a fiction, the title and other opening elements help us to transition into the story and the space of that story. Okay, so in my particular um, serialized novel, A Hong Kong Story, um, you know, right away, it's, it's giving us a cue that we're stepping into a place, a culture that may or may not be foreign to you. Um, you know, there's an individual's story within it. And it's, um, it's something that the title kind of came from my work with Dubliners, with students. Um, and so each time I would study Dubliners with students, which is a lot because I just think, you know, James, this is the collection of short stories by James Joyce, but they all sort of fit together in a puzzle. Um, it's such a beautiful book and, you know, every every story has really unique things to say and the language itself is just really beautiful to look at. Um, so I've always done this kind of pastiche project with students. So I did it in Hong Kong and we called it Hong Kongers. I've done it in Vienna and we called it Vienners and um, we, or maybe Viennese, I can't remember what we called it in the end, but um, but the, the students created their own short stories as a kind of pastiche of Joyce. Um, and they included images as well. And they really thought a lot about the titles of their stories and the way that Joyce's short story titles um, are really are really fascinating. And so you get a kaleidoscope, a kaleidoscope sorry, of, of views, a lot about culture and its changes, a lot about isolation, about rich, poor um, juxtapositions and gaps. Um, it really forced us to think about what Hong Kong is in the case of my students over there. And so my title, Hong Kong Story, is slightly different. Um, it's one novel. It's not a collection of short stories. Um, but, you know, it is about similar ideas in that sense. I'm going to be looking at Hong Kong culture as a kind of post-culture. Um, both I do this in the fiction and I'll be talking about it a bit on the podcast. Um, this is something that was coined by the um, Hong Kong scholar Akbar Abbas, um, he's worked in California, Irvine at UCL, um, UC Irvine, sorry, um, as well as in Hong Kong. And, um, I was lucky to meet him during my PhD. He, 
um, had also studied at the University of Hong Kong, and he came to talk with us. Um, he's just like a brilliant, brilliant thinker and man. And um, he talks about culture in Hong Kong as a kind of reverse hallucination, that we don't see what's really there. People think it's this kind of cultural dearth, this just sort of um, essence of globalized modernity with nothing left to offer, just, you know, workhorses and big buildings. But he he sees culture everywhere there, and he just thinks that it's um, it's kind of invisible unless you really look in the right places. And I think we could see a lot of different cultures this way, especially when we think of globalization and you know the way that um, culture gets kind of lumped together these days, or culture seems to come from like a marketed space instead of from the people themselves. So it's a really useful method and we'll be looking at that book a bit over the course of, you know, this season. I I also broke the serialized novel into parts um, besides the chapters themselves. And this first part is called Getting Lost. Um, I think that having parts allows you to kind of have just have another framing puzzle piece to help different ideas fit together and create more depth um, and so getting lost, it, for me, it conjures the labyrinths of Borges, it, it's Teju Cole's open city, it's Paul Oster's city of glass. It's generally the idea that getting lost can help us to be found. You know, I love kind of allowing myself to get lost if it's safe, of course. And, you know, I mean, maybe less so I want to get lost in the woods because that can obviously be dangerous. But when I lived, when I first lived in Paris back in 2003, um, you know, there weren't smartphones. And so, you know, I had this little pocket map of Paris and I still have it. It's got all the streets on it and it's got, you know, you can kind of on the back, you can look them up alphabetically. And I used to love just getting off at a metro stop and moving through the streets, um, allowing myself to get lost until I was maybe too lost or needed to be somewhere. And then I would pull out my little map and and figure it out. Or maybe I wanted to get to something in particular. Um, and in this way, I just really, I learned the, the streets of Paris. It was just such a wonderful way to, to do it. Um, and I think a lot of people do this in different cities that they, that they call home. Um, you might be less willing to do it when you're on a vacation, especially if it's only say a weekend, because like there's things that you want to see. Right. But I still try to do it in these cases if possible, because, um, I think even if you have a limited time, sort of finding these small spaces, um, can be filled with culture that you don't expect, you know, as much as if not more, um, than the kind of big monuments and museums and other kinds of cultural spaces. So, you know, I think also doing it in nature can be exciting. And, you know, as long as you've got, um, like in Switzerland, we've got great signage. So you are likely to find a sign to get you where you need to go. Um, or if you've got good signal on your phone where you are, um, you know, that's a good way to get out. You know, it depends on the weather. It depends on a lot of things. Obviously, you can use a map and a compass in nature to get out as well. And some people are really good at this. But I guess I've had a few, um, not, luckily not tragic, but let's say a little bit stressful experiences with um, groups of 
high school students learning how to do this in the woods. So for me, I'd prefer to have the signs and the cell phone usage. So I won't go into that right now, but it might just be something that's interesting to think about for you. Also, the distinction between like an urban and a and a natural space. And then also the spaces that are, you know, in between, in which there are many. Um, what does it mean in those places? So the poem then at the beginning, the next sort of layer um, is from Midday Quarry Bay. And so it's it's looking at a, a place that the the novel first enters, as you can tell by the chapter title, Quarry Bay, um, which is an area on Central Island in Hong Kong. It's still very urban, like Central, but it's kind of off Central. So if you're a tourist there, you're unlikely to go to Quarry Bay unless, say, you're going to some of the hiking trails that start there, for example. Um it's probably less likely, but there is still, there's a lot of business there. There are tons of skyscrapers. I mean, I don't know how many people actually live in Quarry Bay, but it's, it's a lot. Um, it would be more than, you know, some small cities in Europe, I'm sure. So, uh, Lung Penguan, um, or PK Lung, as we called him, and Yasi in the mainland, that was sort of his, um, that was his pen name for a lot of his life. And, um, as far as I know, mainlanders, uh, that is in China, still call him Yesi. Um was a very interesting poet and he really he wrote about Hong Kong's culture from so many different angles from so many different places within Hong Kong these kind of also spaces so whether it's like in restaurants or on mountaintops um all these different kind of spaces but he also wrote about elsewheres um he's got a great poem um, a few actually about Prague. He's got some that take place in New York, like the one I just read you. Um, he he kind of travels everywhere and sometimes goes into the abstract. But it's his Hong Kong poetry that he's most famous for, um, because in some ways it really defined a people. Um, I think also going through the handover in 1997, so from British rule back to um, well, not sort of back to Chinese rule, becoming the SAR, Special Administrative Region. So Lung Pengquan, um studied first in Hong Kong and then received his PhD in, in California before returning to Hong Kong to teach. And he was working in the Department um, of Comparative Literature at University of Hong Kong, where I earned my PhD as a professor. So this was before I was there. Um, but he would also come back occasionally to um, give talks and read his poetry. And he was um, really close with a lot of the professors, especially my uh, supervisor, Professor Esther Chung. So uh, when, when PK became sick with lung cancer um, and he you know, didn't know how long he had left, he did a few more readings at the University of Hong Kong. And he also um, allowed the department to do a kind of artistic retrospective. So his poems turned into dances and videos and music. And it was a big celebration of his work and his life, as well as Hong Kong culture more in general. Um, and I was a part of that celebration and put together a dance with a few other students to um, his poem Cloud Travel 
it's the first time I ever performed a dance and it was a lot of fun and it was it was really cool to just kind of be out of our element um, and perform it for this poet in front of us. It was just kind of a magical experience. And also during one of these readings, I, I read on stage the English translation next to Piquet, who was reading in Cantonese. Um, and so today I want to read for you the full poem of Midday Quarry Bay. And my friend Jacqueline Lung, no relation to PK, um, who also studied with me there at Hong Kong U, is going to read the Cantonese version for us, which you can find in the Substack post. So this is Midday Quarry Bay. When work wears me down, I walk in the streets, see a stall with bright red cherries, smell tobacco from the store, blue singled workers. The food stall crowd, a boy ties up a crab with grass and walks it like a dog. I see people rushing and across the road from the funeral parlor, the florist trimming flowers. On a basketball court, the ball is dunked. A passing car sounds its horn. Sometimes I walk to the pier to watch, try to learn from the iron anchors. Sometimes there are ships and sometimes storms, mostly just white waves and sea. There are people unloading and pushing a heavy cart along tracks, shifting wooden boxes and cartons. No hurry to get where they're going. Sometimes I stop by the arch and it's like someone's calling me. Look up at a dusty yellow edifice. Sometimes I see the sky. Sometimes my work tires me out and at times it's just my mood. Walk along a road. Watch an old man sharpening a knife. Sometimes just the feet move like a pair of rusty scissors. Rainy days, I get wet, hoping I'll come across an umbrella, sometimes just walking on, smoke from the chimney, a baby cries, scraps of paper wash into a ditch. Road works never seem to end, construction sites are let go. Sometimes you'll get those insects crawling between iron bars, sometimes a cloud over a puddle. I buy a brush at the store, in paint shops, there are a thousand tins of colors, sealed forever or waiting to be opened. Sometimes I go to the hill to watch rocks try to be as strong as them. Life is a series of hammerings, too many blocks, too many smash-ups. I'm the odd stone out, sometimes wishing I could just melt, sometimes wishing to fly. And I'm not sure if you could hear it in the reading, but there's almost no punctuation um, in this poem. So... There's just a, a single comma, really. And so, of course, we have the line markings, but it's hard to distinguish distinguish exactly what all the phrases are meaning. And I think this ambiguity is part of kind of painting um, a picture of the busyness of the space and the way that all these different scenes um, from the market, from construction, um, the way they all kind of fit together and what it means for the poet. So I just really love this poem. I think it's it's quite beautiful. Okay, so I'm going to talk more about Quarry Bay next week and my relation with it. And I'll do a post later that looks more at P.K. Lung and his poetry. Um, but we're going to be talking today in just a moment about the, the hills that he mentions. Um, and the hills are everywhere in Hong Kong, but there are some great trails that start in Quarry Bay. We're going to talk about the hills more generally and what they demonstrate in terms of the city-country um, dichotomy in terms of the quality of Hong Kong as a city. 
So I'm going to start to get into a few other examples here. And a lot of them I'll just kind of mention for you to think about because I spent a lot of time on the frame today. So sometimes the title changes the way you read the fiction or sometimes it contains an illusion, um, like the case of Things Fell Apart by Chinua Akebe, the Nigerian author. Um, it references Yeats' poem, A Second Coming, right from the start, and it's also quoted at the beginning. Um, but even just by looking at the cover of that title, um, you get that illusion. Uh, you know, Kafka on the Shore by um, Murakami is another one that, you know, makes an illusion right away in the title that's quite recognizable. Um, the Bluest Eye, such a wonderful book by Toni Morrison. You know, the entry into the text for her, I mean, of course, the title, but then we get this sort of school primer um, that starts to move faster and faster. And it almost feels like a kind of horror of these, you know, this this um, nuclear family and like what that means to a kid reading it in school um, at that time. And then there's Gary Steingart. Um, he, in, in, I love his work. And in Our Country Friends, which is sort of a pandemic novel, it's a really beautiful novel. And it plays a lot with culture because the characters are, they're all American, but they're also from elsewhere. And so they play with like language and multilingualism and the cultures they bring um, together. But he he makes it into sort of a faux play. It's written as a novel, but he has this dramatis personae at the beginning, um, as well as um, act for different titles of the sections of the book. And I think it creates a sort of dialogue with Greek tragedy. Um, and it also just makes us aware that these characters are kind of playing a role. Um, there's even dedications can have meaning. So, you know, in mine, I've, I've talked about, you know, being for the Hong Kongers. Um, that's actually kind of a loaded statement in itself um, to have Hong Kongers as a specific group of people. And, you know, if I put the flag there, that would mean even more um, in the things they carried, for example, uh, by by Tim O'Brien, his dedication, although this is a work of fiction, a lot of it comes from his experience fighting in the Vietnam War. And he says it's lovely, lovingly dedicated to the men of Alpha Company, and in particular to Jimmy Cross, Norman Bowker, Rat Kiley, Mitchell Sanders, Henry Dobbins, and Kiawa. And some, you know, these these names appear in the text itself as well. And so it, it just creates a different layer of meaning to the text in front of us. So let's move to that Eagleton book I was talking about, How to Read Literature. And, you know, like I said, there's a lot to check out there. I just want to mention the part that talks about the first line of, um, of novels. And he first mentions the Pride and Prejudice line, which is such a great one. It is the truth. It is the truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. I mean, that is such a wonderful um, first sentence. And Austin really just has a way of, of diving into ideas from the beginning of, of all of her novels. But that's probably the most famous one. Um, so he, he talks about a few different... Uh, opening lines. So there's really an interesting discussion from Moby Dick and Call Me Ishmael. And so I'll just read a short passage from page 23 of the book. If the first sentence of Pride and Prejudice is legendary, there are some equally celebrated first words in American literature. 
call me Ishmael, it has been suggested that this statement could be modernized by the simple addition of a comma, call me Ishmael. This laconic opening sentence of Melville's Moby Dick is hardly a foretaste of what is to come, since the novel as a whole is famous for its ornate, mouth-filling literary style. The sentence is also mildly ironic, since only one character in the novel ever does call the narrator Ishmael. Why, however, should he invite the reader to do so? Because it is his actual name or because of the name's symbolic connotations? The biblical Ishmael, the son of Abraham by his Egyptian servant Hagar, was an exile, outlaw, and wanderer. So perhaps Ishmael is an appropriate pseudonym for this seasoned traveler of the deep. Or is it that the narrator wants to conceal his real name from us? And if so, why? Does his apparent openness, he begins by amicably inviting us to use his first name, if indeed it is a first name, cloak a mystery? People called Maria do not usually say, call me Maria. They say, my name is Maria. To say, call me X is generally a request to be called by a nickname, as in, my real name is Algernon Digby Stewart, but you can call me Lulu. One normally does this for the convenience of others. So um, he goes on a little bit, and then he says, Call me Ishmael is an address to the reader, and like all such addresses, it gives the fictional game away. Simply to acknowledge the presence of a reader is to confess that this is a novel, which realist novels are usually reluctant to do. They generally try to pretend that they are not novels at all, but true life reports. And I think that gets to the essence of what a few of the examples I've mentioned are doing. It makes us aware that the writer is playing with ideas that not to say that it doesn't contain as much truth um, is that the ideas um, are being played with in a malleable way to help us to really um, think about them in perhaps a more disoriented way, that kind of getting lost um, feeling, which is, which is a little bit different. So that first sentence of my novel, the bleeding came one day and wouldn't stop um, you can, you can also read it in several ways and, um, you know, it can be the blood of kind of revolution and politics. It can, so something more collective like that, or can, it can be personal. Um, and, you know, you'll see as you read on what the bleeding refers to, but it is, it is multifaceted. It does refer to both the personal and the communal or the collective at the same time. Um, and so just by hearing that first sentence, um, you know, different things might come to mind for you. Um, you know, it, it sounds violent, but it's, it's also something of the body, something natural, you know, this idea that it wouldn't stop, um, there's something that's being put into motion, um, both for the protagonist and for Hong Kong itself as a city, as an almost character in the novel. Um, so I'm not going to be analyzing much of my novel itself, but, you know, occasionally I'll share a line or two or a short passage and just kind of put it in the context of what we're talking about. So it might be interesting to just consider, you know, I shared that line with you before anything else from the rest of the chapter, um, just so that you can kind of form an opinion about it as a frame um, before you read on. Moby Dick also has, I mean, I just think it's such a wonderful book. It goes in so many different 
directions. And there's quite a bit of talk about paintings. Um, there's some interesting paintings about whales, which I which I discuss in a post about whales from last year and um, looking at what it had to do with what Melville was writing and the paintings that he would have seen, um, especially from Nantucket, but also ones that were in other parts of like New Bedford in Massachusetts, for example. Um, so in chapter three, for example, the spatter in entering the gable ended spatter in, you find yourself in a wide, low, straggling entry with old fashioned wainscots reminding one of the bulwarks of some condemned old craft on one side hung a very large oil painting so thoroughly besmoked and every way defaced that in the unequal cross lights by which you viewed it it was only by diligent study and a series of systematic visits to it and careful inquiry of the neighbors that you could anyway arrive at an understanding of its purpose such unaccountable masses of shades and shadows that at first you almost thought some ambitious young artist in the time of the New England hags had endeavored to delineate chaos bewitched, but by dint of much and earnest contemplation and oft-repeated ponderings, and especially by throwing open the little window toward the back of the entry, you at last came to the conclusion that such an idea, however wild, might not be altogether unwarranted. But the most puzzled and confounded you was a longer... Uh, Long, sorry, limber, portentous, black mass of something hovering in the center of the picture over three blue, dim, perpendicular lines floating in a nameless yeast, a boggy, soggy, squitchy picture, truly enough to drive a nervous man distracted. Yet there was a sort of indefinite, half-attained, unimaginable sublimity about it that fairly froze you to it till you involuntarily took an oath with yourself to find out what that marvelous painting meant. And it goes on a little bit more, um about the painting as well as chapter 56 of the less erroneous pictures of whales and the true pictures of whaling scenes um which really talks about those paintings which attempted to capture the the whaling industry and you know what that mean for the humans involved in it and those who were profiting from it so it's you know it's a moment of a fictional character pondering a fiction before them within a frame and you know entering into that that space and his mind is really going in some deep places there so i i just love looking at you know that element of moby dick as well um you know so if we go into other opening lines you know a tale of two cities of course has the very famous opening line i'll just i'll just remind you of it you know it's a long sentence it was the best of times it was the worst of times it was the age of wisdom it was the age of foolishness it was the epoch of belief it was the epoch of incredulity it was the season of light it was the season of darkness it was the spring of hope it was the winter of despair we had everything before us we had nothing before us we were all going direct to heaven we were all going direct the other way in short, the period was so far like the period present that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on it being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. And I mean, that opening, as well as the rest of the book, is a great teaching point for deconstruction, actually, and these um, binary oppositions and the way they deconstruct in the text and they make us question our realities and the way we see the world. I mean, I, I really love teaching a tale of two cities. I think it's, it's such a rich, rich text. Um, and a couple of recent ish, um, books that reference tale of two cities in their opening line, because the, you know, that line is so famous are Ali Smith's autumn. And she, um, 
in this kind of season series she has, she she always starts with a few quotes before she's got Shakespeare, um, Keats, she's got Ossie Clark, W.S. Graham, and she's got The Guardian um, all on the same page before we enter the text. And she starts with, it was the worst of times, it was the worst of times. Again, that's the thing about things. They fall apart. So she's also referencing things fell apart, um, you know, as well as the Yeats poem again, along with the Tale of Two Cities. So she's just, Ali Smith, you know, is a genius and she's, she's bringing um, so many different other writers together, even just from the first two or three sentences of her book. Um, that's Autumn. And then um, also recently, Julianne Barnes, The Noise of Time starts with a reference um, to that. Well, there's a, there's a preface first, um, which is part of the fiction. And then uh, one called On the Landing starts with, all he knew was that this was the worst time. And, you know, he comes back to that illusion um, later in the book, and especially at the end. Um, it's, it's a really, it's a really great book and I, I recommend that one too. But of course, you know, when you hear that, it's going to conjure up ideas of Dickens, um, and all that that book means. Uh, in Monsieur Payne by Roberto Bellagno, I really love this writer too. Um, he starts us in Paris, 1938, it says. And so like in my book, he's giving us cues of location, which are, important for the story that he's telling us um, and he says on Wednesday the 6th of April at dusk as I was preparing to leave my belongings I received a telegram from my young friend Madame Renault requesting with a certain urgency my presence that evening at the Café Bordeaux on Rue de Rivoli relatively close to where I live which meant that if I hurried I could still arrive punctually at the specific time so he's giving even more specific clues of place allowing us to imagine his movements and the time is important too so we have the already the sense that time um, is of the essence in this in this book, this sort of thriller detective-y sort of um, fiction, but also very philosophical that he writes. Spaces and places. This is the part of the podcast when I talk about a particular space or place I've used in this novel chapter and some related ideas you might consider in your own fiction. Okay, so today for Spaces and Places, I just want to, uh, we're not always going to be talking about Hong Kong specifically, but um, I want to set the scene of Hong Kong topography and, you know, the Hong Kong hills that are mentioned in the poem at the start. So, I mean, Hong Kong is a really kind of, has a special topography, which I think has a lot to do with its its culture and the way it's evolved over time. Um, it has 111 peaks of over 100 meters um, and you can get to these peaks very easily no matter where you live so um, while I lived in Hong Kong I was always in very urban areas in Wan Chai, Quarry Bay, Sai Ying Poon so these are all like right around central central island right near the city center but within I would say five minutes from all of those places, yeah, I could be on a dirt hiking trail and suddenly be in the middle of nowhere um, in terms of culture, right? So I couldn't I couldn't see anybody, maybe a hiker here or there. Um, it was me and the trees and maybe a snake, maybe a frog. Um, and it's, it's really interesting the way that um, 
this can happen. Only 25% of Hong Kong is inhabitable. Um, so it's very dense. Um, there was at one point Kowloon Walled City, which is now destroyed. It's this kind of lawless place, um, was the densest settlement on earth with 33,000 people in the space of one city block. I mean, that's 33,000 people in the space of one city block. It kind of blows my mind. The town I grew up in has about that many people and it's a pretty big town just outside Boston. Um, all of us in one block. I cannot really imagine it. But if you want to kind of see it on screen, um, Wayne Wong's uh, Life is Cheap but Toilet Paper is Cheaper film does a really great job of depicting it. And it's got like, I don't know, maybe about four stars, not stars, four out of 10 on um, IMDb. But don't let that put you off. If you want to see something about Kowloon Walled City, I really, I really love what Wayne Wong does, and he kind of just takes you into it um, unapologetically. There's not so much of a great um, storyline, but it's still a really fascinating film to see if you can get your hands on it. Um, you might even find it on YouTube. I don't know. So Kowloon Walled City was eventually demolished because it was just um, a place of utter lawlessness, which was, I guess, part of its appeal at first is that it was really um, just run by the citizens. Um, it wasn't run by the British colonists, but um, it became a place of, you know, a lot of drug use and dangerous public housing situations um, because there was a lot of poverty there as well. It kind of was this continuous feed of breeding um, the dangers that were present in that place. And so they ended up uh, just totally demolishing it. And I mean, Hong Kong is famous for their reclaimed land and just kind of making things new. So, you know, totally bulldoze it down, then make a park over it. And it's like it never even existed. So, this, the, you know, the Hong Kong uh, city space is just, you know, is really amazing in that sense. I also, I worked up in Mountain Shan, which is in the new territories. I'll be talking about these different spaces. Um, so it was like uh, 40 minutes on a bus from the city. The public transportation is just incredible. Some people take ferries to work. Um, some people walk, of course, but you can take the MTR, the train, you've got trams, you've got double-decker buses going everywhere, even on these like cliff, um, cliff-like streets, which is a little scary the first time you do it when you're sitting on the top of the bus and it just doesn't look like physics will allow the bus to stay upright, but it always does. Um, so just really great places to, to get around. But on the hiking trails themselves, I mean, it can be very, it can feel very remote. And in some places, like in Sai Kung Country Park, um, maybe you can't even see a city or civilization um, anywhere. And you can, you can actually hike into some of the old villages where people still live, um, which has a very different feel from the rest of the city, kind of these low ground homes. Um, you just see more traditions around whether it's the small temple that might be there um, or the way that people are cooking and eating. It's very different. And there's a lot of festivals in these villages um, that a lot of times people are invited into, even if you're not a part of 
that particular village or even the culture itself um, as well. Um, some of my friends at work would even hike from from where we were working at the school I was working at to the other side of Ma'anshan Mountain, which is one of the biggest peaks, um, over to their homes in Sai Kung. And so they would just hike about an hour to get home and maybe not every day, but many days, that's how they would get around. So it's it's such an urban place. You know, it's one of the big, we call it like alpha cities or alpha plus 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 cities um, in the world. Um, you know, some would have it in the top four or five um, in terms of it's not just its population size, but it's also um, it's access to culture and um, economics and influence and all these things. Um, yet we've got all this nature around and we've got a lot of beaches as well. So there are nearly 300 islands also in Hong Kong. Um, sorry, nearly 200 islands um, in Hong Kong. And, you know, you've got ferries going between all of them. You've got beaches all over the place. Some are very populated and others are quite remote. You won't see anybody around at all. Um, so now that Kowloon Walled City is no more, it's destroyed um, because there are all sorts of problems there, drugs and poverty and it was not a good place. Um, but Mong Kok has become one of the de densest places in the world, which is another area um, of Hong Kong. But still from Mong Kok, you can very quickly be on a mountain or a beach. It's Hong Kong is just filled of juxtapositions like this, whether it's modernity and traditions of different types of culture, of city and nature. And it makes it a great place to think about exploring space and place, not only there, but elsewhere as well. So using it as a catalyst or a springboard and considering the way humans interact with their environments to create culture. Um, and in turn, how culture dictates our relation with nature, because also a lot of the land you see in Hong Kong is is also reclaimed land. Um, and a lot of the hillsides have been patched up with cement to to save people from um, mudslides during typhoons, for example, where they might be a lot more dangerous in a country like Philippines. And then um, in Hong Kong, you know, people have learned how to engineer the land to support its infrastructure. So it's just an amazing place. I have so much to say about it. I've got other guests I'm going to also ask to talk about it and other texts we can look at. Um, but I think that also as a relational space, so even if you know, you're know you not planning to go to Hong Kong anytime soon or you haven't been there in the past, you know what does it look like or not look like elsewhere and what does that mean for us as we move through urban spaces and natural spaces and in um in apartment buildings and in restaurants and in cultural um cultural areas like whether it's a museum or a fish market you know what does it say about culture as always i'll bring you a five minute version of today's topic to help you get creative and let's do this on thursday if you're not on my Substack page, please sign up for a free subscription to get access to all the links, multimedia, and a transcript, as well as to join the conversation. Thanks so much for joining me on the Matterhorn today. 